everybody, and welcome back to Going for Two, the official podcast of Extra Points. I am your host, Extra Points publisher, Matt Brown, and I'm joined here today, uh, as always, with Brian Fisher. Brian, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, you know, coming off the Super Bowl, getting some excitement. Uh, you usually think this is a kind of a down period, uh, and especially in college athletics. We turn our attention to, to college basketball uh, this time of year, but we also have some college football coming up around the corner as well. So it's, it's going to be fun to kind of dive into that. I'm I'm glad that you're high energy right now. I feel like I'm so caffeinated at this point that my blood is like a third monster energy drink, which I realize is like the default like level for people from Ohio, but the, the, uh, even more so for me right now. And I need that because I just feel like I'm dragging. Um, and I don't know if it's the fact that as we're recording right now, I'm surrounded by two feet of snow. I don't know if it's because I've seen the sun once in three weeks. I don't know if it's because I didn't have a regular off season, but um, my typical like internal calendar of how the football season works has been completely blown to hell. Like, I uh, let me, I'm going to admit to something here and maybe I shouldn't as somebody as who, who, who talks about college athletics for a living. I legitimately forgot about national, like the formal national signing day until the day that it happened. And that used to be the most important day of my publishing year when I worked for Vox and, and, and a lot of my other previous jobs, I, I forgot that the second national Sunday was happening until I sat down at my desk that day and saw a couple of the tweets. Did, did you remember, or, or am I, am I not the only person who let this slip by? Well, I, I only remember because I was talking with the coach about it. And so that, that's the only <laughs> reason I had my memory jogged, but uh, you know, to be honest, I, I, I worked for rivals back in the day, covered recruiting extensively. That's kind of been in my background and, and I miss, you know, having it be a big day in February. And, you know, frankly, with the early signing period, it, it's simply not. It, it is an afterthought. And you're, you kind of thought maybe this year of all years, you would have had guys maybe wait to sign, wait till February. Maybe there's that, oh, just that little bit of chance that you could take an official visit uh, with a pandemic. Maybe they lift the dead period. But uh, that wasn't the case at all. Everybody said, you know, I'm signing in December. I'm locking in my spot and we are going on from there. And uh, it was really drama free. And we haven't really seen that, uh, I think, at, at this level. And I think it's going to continue to be this way where really the, the true national signing day is is still in December. Yeah, that's oh, I remember when the, the second national signing day or I guess splitting the two national signing days was, was first discussed. There was a thing there was a, a popular school of thought that only a small number of people would, would pick the early period because if you were a good prospect, you'd want to preserve your flexibility as much as possible. You want to wait a little bit after the coaching carousel, perhaps, or at least some of the coaching carousel. But you're right. If you are a top 300 prospect, you are almost certainly signing in December. And just in terms of like a meta media perspective, uh, that's, that's, that's kind of a drag because there's a bunch of other things going on in December, right? There's still college football postseason. There's a bunch of things happening with professional basketball. College basketball is starting. Also, it's almost Christmas and everybody is exhausted and focusing on things that are not sports. National Signing Day in February was made it a little bit easier for that event to stand out. And now it, it's easy to kind of to go under the radar. I think only just a, a small handful of players at all of, of national consequence ended up signing then. And Brian, this is going to shock you, but I'm, I'm taking, I'm double checking all of the recruiting data from the class of 2021. It's not entirely in the books yet. And um, it's going to shock you, but it appears Alabama did pretty well. Yeah. I, I hear they have the the best class ever and, and shocking to hear that, you know, Alabama fresh off a national title would, would do really well in recruiting after doing really well in recruiting for, Oh, I don't know, 15 years now. 
it's, it's even before we started to actually track this. And then wouldn't you know it, Ohio State is right there behind them signing one of their best classes ever. And then you could just go down the list and it's the same six, seven schools that you would expect just about every year, right? LSU, Georgia, Clemson, um, Oregon making the, the West Coast special musical guest appearance there at the top. Uh, and then Texas A&M right, right behind them. You'd have to scroll down you know, I think pretty far to find some schools that, that might be considered a surprise. Wisconsin ends up signing a top 15 class and they, they get one five-star player. And that doesn't happen very often, especially as somebody that's not from Wisconsin. And, you know, Florida States and Texas are lower than you than you might normally expect. Uh, but otherwise, it, it's pretty chalky. And it's been pretty chalky for a while. Uh, the, the, the one noteworthy thing about this is, is less that it's the same six schools that are near the top. But the sheer proliferation of the absolute best players going to a small number of schools. I mean, I, we were talking about this b- before we started recording, but uh, my buddy Ari Wasserman of The Athletic you know, pointed out that as of this recording, 57 of the top 100 players have signed with six schools. And, and likely it's going to end up being 58 by, by the time things are all said and done. And, and wouldn't you know it, those are the same six schools that tend to be in the conversation for the college football playoff just about every time. And you and I both know if you recruit a bunch of really good football players, chances are you're going to have a pretty good football team. Unless you're Texas, but just about everybody else, you know, is able to follow this this relatively linear progression. So if you are not a fan of Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Clemson, or maybe Oregon, is there any hope in any of this changing? Is there anybody outside of that, like, top six group that could potentially get there? Or is this just, like, etched in stone tablets? These are the teams that are going to continue to completely dominate talent acquisition from the high school level. I I think, you know, you, you go back a couple of months and when the college football playoff was taking place and Alabama was, was making their run and this was kind of a topic that came on there, just the lack of national interest, the lack of diversity uh, among the programs really competing for these these final four playoff spots. And um, it, it has played out in recruiting. It has played out in the transfer portal as well. You start to see uh, guys like Art Gilbert go from LSU to Florida. You know, I mean, it, it's even the power programs are, are trying to clean up a little bit uh, when you have the introduction of the portal. So it, it is all about talent acquisition in, in the college football game. And unlike the NFL draft, you know, those those worst teams are not getting those high picks. And I, I think it's just a, a system that continually reinforces success. And that's why we call them blue bloods because they're able to acquire uh, these recruits. They're able to sell a, a you know, a vision of success, uh, being able to send their guys off to the NFL. And it, it, I don't see it slowing down at any time soon. I, I think if, if there is any case for a program to potentially kind of break through and uh, maybe it's maybe even break back into that kind of that group that you were talking about, it's probably going to be USC from the standpoint of they're located on the West Coast. They're a traditional power. Um, you know, that, that Pete Carroll era is still fresh in, in some of these uh, recruits' minds. And, uh, you know, frankly, they the competition level on the West Coast, it's basically them in Oregon in terms of those elite programs prospects. You know, UCLA is not getting into the mix for some of those guys. Um, you know, we've seen not even close, not even close, seen staff turnover at Arizona. They, they've got a new coaching staff now. Um, you know, it's just a, a different kind of aspect out West. And if anybody can kind of break through that glass ceiling a little bit, it, it's probably going to be USC or Oregon. But uh, I, I don't have a whole lot, a whole lot of faith that uh, anybody can really knock off those truly elite programs like you mentioned, Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson uh, from their perch. It is truly amazing if you are an observer around our age 
to think back and now think of USC as almost the plucky underdog to kind of sneak in here to the table of the elites, given that it wasn't that long ago, at least in our minds, we you know some of our formative experiences with college football when they were essentially a professional football team, and they and and you know were were recruiting at an absolutely elite level, and you would expect them to be in that national conversation every year. Uh, and, and this this was really, I think, their first bounce back recruiting class after a disappointing past couple of seasons. Yeah, it's you're right. Like for for all, if you want to be like a a college football hipster and you know, well, actually, Arizona State is recruiting very well in Southern California, and oh, you know, North Carolina picked up this this young whipper snapper named Mac Brown and he's doing some things like, yeah, you can kind of squint and look at a couple of teams in the middle that are maybe overperforming on the recruiting angle relative to their historic success. But at the very top, it's the same six teams, man. Maybe it's going to be you. Maybe USC gets in there. Maybe A&M, especially if crude because it goes up a little bit more, but um, if, if, if it's hard for me then to get into this microphone and to tell people uh, yes, you should expect some some potential changes. You should stay invested. It's probably going to be the same six teams. But I, I think USC and Oregon are also good test cases. If you're looking at what these programs did, obviously they, they found some success at, at a high level. They kind of fall, fell off. And you look back, they said, we've, we've got to reinvest here. You know, USC, you look at their support staff. They were way behind the Alabamas and the Clemson of the world. And, and they still are, but they've made that, started to make that investment in terms of those off-the-field personnel. The recruiting department has been beefed up at, at USC quite a bit. Obviously, Mario Cristobal, a former Alabama assistant, he has revamped all their operations and, and added a lot of uh, folks as well to their recruiting department and really uh, understood that in order for Oregon to be successful, you've got to hit the pavement. You've got to have your coaches out there. You've got to have your support staff uh, making calls. And they, they've understood that in order to kind of get back to that level where they, they once were, they've got to have that investment from facilities, from personnel, especially uh, just to to the off-field coaches as well in terms of uh, if you do lose a guy to maybe it's an, an assistant coach that goes to be a coordinator elsewhere, you've got to make the right hire in terms of replacing him. And I think USC and, and uh, Oregon are, are doing that. And we could see other programs uh, understand, hey, those programs are starting to have success now after they made that investment. Maybe we have to, to beef up our operations as well. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's such a big part of the story of Clemson's recruiting success. You know, they were a program that I think really understood the market advantage of a really good uh, communications department with uh, as far as recruiting in terms of, of how they were telling their story on social media, how they were telling that story with video. And now there's a small creative army at, at most of those six schools. And Clemson still does this really well, but they were kind of the first to market. Just how I think we can go back and think about how Oregon was really successful a decade ago because they were first to market for, uh, I think, some really interesting innovations in player nutrition and in how practices were actually run. But yeah, everyone's learning right now, and especially you, you would think you're learning Oregon. You can't just recruit by, I don't know, writing a check to pick up some 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 list of names uh, in Texas and hope that people will come to you, you still actually have to try. Um, and they are unquestionably trying that now. And there are certainly some programs in the mid-tier that are, are trying that now. Maybe the, maybe the interesting story, maybe this is probably a different podcast and certainly some different newsletters would be, what would be the next kind of innovation in this space that somebody that doesn't have the recruiting budget of a Caribbean country uh, can use and, and try to, to carve out a niche like Clemson has been able to do, like LSU was able to do. But in the short term, you're right. At, at the top, 
it's all chalk and it's probably going to be all chalk in the near future. But you, you did touch on something else that is unique about this class that uh, I do think is worth talking about, even if it's not as much of an issue at, at the very top end. And, and that is for this class, you have both the emergence of the transfer portal as an increasingly important tool for talent acquisition. One that I think is only going to become more important as one time transfer rules eventually liberalize likely this year. I'm, 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 I, I believe April is, is the timeline that that's been discussed. You, you, you may know more about, about this than me. So we have that. And then we also have the fact that Hey, this year didn't count for anyone's eligibility if they didn't want it to. You have COVID shirts. You have some of these schools that might bring back 10, 12, 15 extra seniors. So they might not necessarily have the money to have 95, 96 guys on scholarship, even though they are technically allowed to. So they're not going to sign as many players. Um, And that's led to, I think, a, a couple of really interesting outliers I was I was looking through this and you and you know listeners you, you might have heard about this before but Texas State did not sign a single high school player in this recruiting class. All of their available scholarships were picked up from either junior colleges or transfers from other programs. And it's not like they only signed four guys. Um, it's over a dozen. And we have a couple of other programs here, mostly at the G five level, but uh, not I think exclusively at the bottom, where that's half your recruiting class. Like that, that is as big of a player acquisition pool as hitting high schools. Brian, like I'm, I'm not overreacting to just one spreadsheet here, right? Like this is, this is a, a bona fide trend for the class of 2021, right? I, I mean, I think it started a little bit last year in terms of coaches said, we're going to save a few scholarships. And, and uh, I, I think they kind of took that and, and he almost turned it up a notch or two this year. Partly because, you know, let's face it, they were not able to get that FaceTime. Uh, well, I guess they were able to get that f- literal FaceTime, but they were not able to go out on the road, evaluate them, uh, a lot of these prospects. I mean, in California, these kids haven't even played in, in the fall. So uh, some Same of the thing here in Illinois. Yeah. They, they weren't even able, you know, they're basically going on either junior tape or even sophomore tape for a lot of these guys. So uh, it, it's just a diff- different recruiting environment. And at least if you you have a transfer, maybe you have somebody who, who you have film on already, you have uh, maybe a book on, on him in terms of that relationship with the high school coach, you can get some background from maybe an assistant coach that worked on that staff that came across that kid. You know, at least there's, there's a little bit more of a sure thing in terms of, you know, a guy's going to come in, he's going to know what kind of, how, how to get with the program. You know, it's, it's not just a, a freshman literally thrown into the fire of, of college classes, dealing with workouts and all that. They're, they're going to be used to getting up early in the morning to go lift and, and understand that you got to go to class after that. And then you kind of come in and watch film after that. You're going to get used to that kind of day to day life of, of uh, not only the off season, but uh, in the season. And I think there was certainly less of a risk in that. And, and you start to see why a lot of these programs are saving those scholarships because you can not only get an impact player that can help you on the field, but you can get more of a known quantity in terms of that player that you can mold and, and develop. And I think it's interesting with Texas State. I mean, you look at the area around that school right now, high school football there, I, I think, has improved pretty markedly uh, the last decade. And to not e- not get any of those high school players certainly was a bit eye-opening, but I, I don't think that, I think that was much more of a uh, 2021 aspect to what, what we're not, not necessarily a, a trend that we're going to see. But uh, I mean, you look at 247 sports, you know, FBS college football team signed 400 fewer scholarship uh, recruits to scholarships in, in the class of 21. And, um, you know, Bud Elliott, who, who put that article together is uh, terrific at, at running those numbers. And 
you know, signing fewer scholarships overall is going to be much more of a trend to keep an eye on uh, come 2022 and beyond. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand the the argument. Particular, I mean, if particularly your your work, you're a director of operations, and you're, you're trying to figure out your roster, especially if you're say at a struggling G5 school, and you know that you need to turn things around relatively quickly, or there's not going to be as many next years in the future. I understand the argument for going heavy on transfers, right? For exactly these reasons that you're talking about, you know that every one of these kids that you're that you're looking at knows how to handle a college weight room, that they are physically capable of, of participating in, in FBS football, or at least Division One football, and that they might be a little bit better equipped for some of the, the big cultural jump that comes from high school to college. Totally get it. Same reason why uh, a lot of schools, traditionally ones that haven't been able to get great high school talent, would heavily go into junior colleges. Similar reason. But that's also a risky strategy. It's a risky strategy, one, because we know that the upside for a lot of those transfer players is not going to be the same as as it might be for a high school player that you can have on your roster and in your culture for a while. And it can also be harder to develop, to, to, to literally develop that culture, to have know that you're going to have somebody in there for four or five years to develop as a student leader or a, or a program leader and build some continuity that you can then bring other other classes into um so when i i mean the, the obvious example we think about and i know that this it's not exactly apples to oranges is kansas right kansas comes in really hard place to win bring in charlie weiss and we, we think we're going to try to turn things around by by giving us a jolt of immediate playmaking talent we go and bring in a lot of junior college players they don't work out we have roster attrition suddenly uh we're way below the 85 scholarship limit and we have no chance of competing. And then the cycle continues again. And then the cycle continues kind of again. And and without really changes to uh, the limit to number of players you can sign in a recruiting class, it's not like Kansas can just go in and bring in 60 transfers and get back up to 85. You're always going to be uh, recruiting uphill. And I know that that's not exactly the case here because we ha- you can go over the 85 limit with transfers, but that's in the back of my mind. That's always a concern I have when I, when I hear about a team that is trying to, you know, make transfers an integral part of their roster composition, because even if you nail every single one of those, you got to do it again in two years, because you're going to have a big hole in your roster otherwise. And it seems like there's there's still a, a margin of error there that's uh, that's not that big, you know. Yeah, and I think you can stay in the same state and, and go back to the Bill Snyder days at Kansas State. You know, they were ones that not only did yeah they recruited their especially their under the radar type of high school players and they brought sure. in healthy classes, but they also supplemented that with key junior college transfers. And you're seeing basically that same game plan now involving the portal instead of bringing guys up from the junior college ranks at you know you know four or five at a time. You're bringing them in from the transfer and they're coming from other group of five power five institutions. So just the level of athlete that you're bringing in to kind of supplement that roster is, is at a much higher level than, than it once was. And, and what Bill Snyder was doing back in the day with Kansas State. And so I think it's it, it's almost a strategy that we've seen play out before. It's just happening a lot more widespread and, and a lot more at, at a higher level. Yeah, the, you're definitely not wrong about the, the caliber of athlete. You know, one of the other reasons that heavily recruiting JUCOs can be risky is because you're not always necessarily sure that someone's going to make the academic transition uh, perfectly well. And if there's a really high level athlete that goes JUCO, there's often some reasons, whether that's academic or cultural or behavioral or, or, or other things that have nothing to do with football that might make 
playing college football or acclimating to college football more difficult. And that is sometimes the reason why people transfer. Um, and, you know, you can't necessarily tell those things from a spreadsheet and you hope that that coaches can be strong talent evaluators and, and build those relationships to kind of cover themselves a little bit. But that's always going to be a risk. Uh, I, I, I would be nervous for any program that decides to go all in one way or another. But even now, like Kansas State, the Bill Snyder Kansas State is a great example of a, of a school that used JUCOs to build a sustainable you know, roster and compete at a high level over multiple years. And you were telling me that we might already have some examples of schools that are doing this with the transfer portal, and it's working. You know, SMU was was pretty aggressive about trying to turn over their roster that way. They're they're recruiting high school players now, and this is the best SMU football that we've been we've seen since. And basically, in our lifetimes, you and I um, are if, if we're seeing this a little bit. I think with Miami, there's some reason to be optimistic, and they're recruiting a lot of high school football players in 2021, 2022. But but they've been really aggressive in the portal, and potentially Oregon State, another program that was aggressive in the portal early on and kind of weaned its way off. Is the move really to go heavy with transfers for one or two classes and then move away from them, or do you think in in this era? You can consistently build like a top 25 caliber football team if like a fifth of your roster comes from transfers or more. I think it would be difficult to do at, at that large of a scale because I know a lot of coaches, they they preach culture and they want to make sure they ha- find the right fit. And, and as much as it, the fit might be there in terms of on the field and, and bringing in an impact guy, I, I think they do want to make sure that uh, they're not just taking a transfer to take a transfer and, and fill a spot. They want to make sure it's the right guy and you don't have necessarily that long recruiting buildup that you would with a high school player. So I think it, you know coaches still want to lean back and develop their roster, especially at those mid and, and lower levels to where you do have guys that can uh, maybe take four or five years. You know, I, I don't see Wake Forest uh, under Dave Clawson kind of changing things up right now and, and saying, you know what, we're, we're going to go heavy into the portal. But they might take one or two guys uh, to really supplement yeah. what they've been doing the last couple of years. And you know, I, I see, see others, certainly USF, they're going to go into the portal heavy. That That's, you know, like like you were saying with SMU, that's a, a big time blueprint that, that a lot of these group of five schools especially. But you know, we've also seen it success with Utah. Utah, key guys that they, they've been able to develop a quick relationship with, but they know that they can fill a spot and, and play at uh, a level that the Utes are operating. So I, I think it's going to be a, a big bit of a mix depending on where your program is. And, and I could honestly even see it kind of waxing and waning depending on how you see the in-state high school talent that you know that you're going to have to go after. You know, a state like Washington, uh, great year in, in the state of Washington for high school talent this past yeah. year. And I, a lot of the talk around Washington, because there was a coaching transition, they didn't land a lot of those guys. Well, you know, maybe if, if it trails off after that, maybe Jimmy likes goes into the portal and say, look, this can kind of be a couple of my bridge guys. Uh, bring in, going into the, the transfer portal, get some guys that we know can make an impact. And then when those high school you know recruits are, are really ready, when we see those sophomore and freshmen that we're already seeing film on, um, you know, saying, hey, those guys are coming in, in two more years, then, that, then that's when you kind of go heavy with, with high schoolers. So I, th- I think it could be adjusted really depending on your location, depending on the conference you're in, and, and frankly, depending on where your roster situation is. Some guys are going to have to win right away uh, as soon as they take a job. That's a lot different pressure if you're taking over that one of those gigs versus taking over Kansas where you know there's a little bit of a longer leash in terms of what you're going to be able to, ha- to kind of tolerate on the field. That's a really good point. Uh, I, I, in terms of of 
your your uh, your transfer strategy you know, waxing and waning depending on what's happening on the high school level. Um, one that I hadn't really considered. I know off the top of my head, I, I imagine another example might be a place like Missouri or maybe Arizona, where every once in a while you're going to have the depth, particularly at the high end for in-state talent where you can be competitive and, and bring in a lot of those kids. But even as high school football, I think, has improved, particularly in Arizona, um, there's usually there's usually not enough of either kids that that, that you're going to be able to get um, that can be difference makers. And that, you know, that's that's a big part of your of your footprint. And if you can know that, hey, maybe 2023 is going to be more of a down year and 2024 is going to be a bigger year, you can kind of plan your roster. Another. If you're Ohio State. Or I guess if you're another school that recruits Ohio heavily uh, or Louisiana heavily, and there's, you know, there's always going to be kind of a constant baseline or Texas heavily. Yeah, that's a different calculation than somebody who's uh, whose state or, or recruiting territory might be a little bit more boom or bust. And, and I mean, you could also kind of throw in the NFL aspect as well. I mean, you look at going back to LSU in particular, you know, every year they would have some underclassmen that you know, really popped and, and developed well that they weren't really expecting to kind of make that jump to the NFL, but they did. And that kind of left a hole in their roster. Now you're kind of starting to see schools that uh, maybe a guy goes early that they weren't expecting. Um, you can replace that, that, that spot on your depth chart through the transfer portal and, and give another guy an opportunity. Um, and, and that really doesn't necessarily you know, really change your scholarship calculus because you're still expecting that guy to be there another year or two. Um, maybe they had ended up redshirting. Um, you know, they, they play okay as, as, as a redshirt freshman and, and then they have a huge year as, as a redshirt sophomore. Um, they they want to, you know, go pro after the next year. Then you can kind of change, uh, you know, through the portal that that kind of athlete that you recruit, you know, this guy's only got one year. He can basically be a like for like replacement uh, on that 85 and you can kind of go from there and, and supplement your roster uh, with some impact players as well. It's interesting. College basketball seems to already be in this space. Almost everybody has as a, tra- a transfer player, if if not multiple transfer players in their rotation. And maybe it's just easier to notice because we're, we're looking at a dozen kids uh, essentially for your roster rather than 85 where, um, you know, picking up two or three goes flies out of the radar. It's not a trend, but if, if you're, if you're looking at things proportionally, you're, you're going to have bigger numbers on the, on the football side. And I don't necessarily, I don't think that the sky has fallen uh, in the basketball world. And there are certainly some programs that have decided to really build their rosters through transfers and, and proven you can win a lot of college basketball games that way. Now it's not apples to apples. It's not even apples to oranges necessarily, but some of the same cultural forces that are at play for basketball are probably uh, the case here for football as well. Yeah, and I think it's going to be also fascinating with, especially right now, in this time period for a lot of these schools, just the, the entire scholarship math in terms of how you navigate this entire thing, because uh, not only are those seniors coming back, they're, they're not counting against your cap, but that, that junior that comes back, he's, he's going to count against the cap the, the following year. And you're going to have a, a bit of a crunch, you know, those sophomores that, that got an extra year and want to take advantage of it and don't want to transfer. You know, how, how is that going to kind of affect uh, how you recruit that uh, that scholarship down the road? So I think it's going to be interesting to see how schools really do navigate um, the upcoming scholarship crunch. There's there's no no other better, uh, I guess, descriptor for it right now that yeah. I think of because it, it's going to come. It's not going to come this year necessarily in, in 2021, but come that 2022 
class of recru- recruits and transfers and just general scholarship um, uh, limits. I, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of guys say, you know, what, we're going to have to do a, some quote unquote roster management as best we can in order to kind of get under that cap. And we, we've seen schools get creative in years past every time. Oh, well, they, they've got 87. How are they going to really end up with with 85 by the time, you know, fall rolls around? Everybody ends up you know, from medical red shirts to, you know, guys just deciding to, to give up their scholarship. Um, you're going to see a lot more creative ways to kind of do that in order to manage these numbers. I think in, in the next two, three years from now, my hope, um, as we enter into an era where the federal government has indicated that they want to be much more active in, um, regulating college athletics or promoting the the rights and flexibility of athletes. And as athletes are organizing on some levels, and I, I would hope that because you're right, there's going to be a huge crunch and there, uh, for that there would be an accompanying, uh, rise in additional flexibility for athletes. Um, so they're not the ones holding the bag because it's not their fault that COVID happened. It's not their fault that a school can't necessarily afford 95 scholarships. It's not their fault that a coach didn't evaluate talent properly, but a lot of these athletes don't have four year scholarships. And the ones that do, I'm making big air quotes right now around, around four years. Um, and if you get cut and have to change schools, that's that's a major life change. So, I mean, yeah, we can, we can use euphemistic terms like roster management, and that, that's going to be what it is. Um, and for most of college football history, I mean, you could just get run off, right? And you really didn't have a whole lot of other flexibility. You know, in two years, yeah, you're going to be able to transfer once, but if nobody has any room – because the 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 roster the the pool of available players changed dramatically and the rules didn't, I think athletes will be will will be severely disadvantaged. And my hope is that before we get to that point, the collective we here can figure figure out some solutions. So um, athletes aren't the only ones facing negative repercussions, or, or that they they get something out of this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's it's important to also keep in mind there's kind of two two parallel tracks from from looking at this this issue, if you will. Uh, there's the coach's perspective. Hey, I, I want those extra guys. I know it can develop them. I, I want uh, just for depth purposes. I, I want that f- third extra offensive tackle on my roster just in case something happens to my other guys. And then there's the administrator viewpoint as this as well that I think is going to come due as uh, in, in 2022 and beyond is, you know, some of these schools, especially facing the financial crush right now. Uh, are they going to have enough money to pay for 115 roster spots uh, on a college football program? Are they going to even have enough money to pay for 95? You know, I think that's going to be something that a lot of these schools are going to have to reckon with over the coming coming days and, and years as they adjust their budgets. Um, it's certainly not going to have a huge impact on, say, an SEC school who knows that that Disney check is going to be coming in for uh, you know an extra $10 million a year. Uh, certainly they're not worried about it, but if you're in the group of five, especially if you're at a, like a max school, I, I think the, the ability to go beyond 85 is much more of a scary proposition if you're an administrator than you are a coach. Un- unquestionably, we have Mac schools right now that aren't paying for 85. Um, they're not advertising that, but yeah, but it, it's true. I mean, shoot, even before the football season, right? Like when we were just talking about basketball and baseball and spring sports, Wisconsin, an enormous budget, said, we love you. You can't come back. We're not paying for it. Um, and, 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 and part of the reason that they were adamant about that was so they could avoid this exact situation where they wouldn't feel like precedent uh, obligated them to then pay for 95, 96. Um, that that is going to be a big storyline to to continue to follow. This, you know, when we're talking about college athletics, 
just like with almost anything else, if you really want to understand what's going on, you got to follow the money. The, the money is, is the major storyline here. And if you want to continue to be informed about where that money is going, how it got there, and how it shapes what you experience and see on the field on Saturdays and on the court this spring, I think you'll like Extra Points, which is uh, which is my newsletter that helps sponsor this particular podcast and help shape um, and under, and explain all of these forces that shape what, what you actually get to see. What's happening with name, image, and likeness? How we determine how many athletes you're allowed to take in a scholarship class? What transfer legislation looks like? Um, how uh, changing patterns in, in enrollment and higher education policy? All of this, all of this stuff shapes your athletic department, and we want to help you understand it a little bit better. So if you're not already subscribed to Extra Points, which you can find at www.extrapointsmb.com. Um, you can now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you do it and save a little bit of money. If you go to www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two, that's spelled G-O-F-O-R-2, like the number, you can get 20% off a paid subscription. And typically, a subscription is 7 bucks a month or 70 bucks a year. You can get that for 20% off, uh, which means that you get access to a chat room where you can talk to me and talk to our readers all the time, and you can get four newsletters a week to help you better understand the forces that are shaping college athletics. That is, that, again, www.extrapointsmb.com slash G-O-F-O-R-2. Um, I, I mean, we're going to continue to, to follow all everything that's going on here on the on the recruiting side. But there's the other re- way that like our schedule is completely blown to hell right now, right? Is like normal under normal circumstances. This is when all of the college football people <laughs> would then pivot to college basketball, which we've probably barely been paying attention to, just enough so we can you know we can credibly talk about bracketology and get ready for the actual NCAA tournament. And that's still a thing. Uh, I, I would point out that that my alma mater is now apparently the Detroit Pistons and an, an amazing college basketball program that I, I've watched twice. Um, but this year, we're also going to still have football. Um, there's going to be a spring FCS season, allegedly. Um, it, it, it seems like that's you know that that's changing a little bit as as we're talking here but um we're going to have actual FCS football here uh very very soon right like it, I, I think it's McNeese State that's about to play Arlington State and McNeese State start on Saturday uh Saturday night and it's it's fascinating because we just had the Super Bowl usually we're we're waiting a long time you hear a lot of these talk about oh these spring leagues are going to start up and that's going to occupy our time and we're going to be focused on that and um certainly we had the XFL and the AAF but this is actual legitimate college football in the spring and we're going to have spring practice and spring games from FBS teams as well so I think it's going to be a really interesting spring just with everything going on and and FCS football uh you know they they push off their decision they you know a lot of the leaders at B said you know what we're, we're going to have the FCS playoff in the spring we're going to have these uh, really adjudicated uh, seasons um, and some teams are playing eight games uh, some are playing four divisional games and maybe a non-conference game here or there it really is all over the map and it's almost reflective of what happened in in the FBS schedule we had a lot of different leagues doing kind of what was best for them and some schools opted out some schools you know frankly said uh, kind of threw up their hands after playing a few games and said this is this is too much for us to handle and I, I think it's going to be a fascinating experiment experiment to see whether any of those lessons learned from the fall and the FBS leagues translate into the spring with these FCS leagues because uh, let's face it they are not testing at the levels that the SEC was the Big Ten 
uh, those daily testing and, and all that. So what happens when there's an outbreak at the FCS level? It's just a fascinating experience all around. And I can't wait to see some some actual FCS football games. But I'm also kind of worried as, as to what, how rocky this is going to be over these next six to eight weeks. I have absolutely no idea what to expect on the field. Like I, I have to be honest, I struggled to really enjoy a lot of what I watched from the last co- the FBS college football season, not just because of ethical considerations about, well, should this be, be being played at all? And we don't understand the health concerns and everything, but also wasn't a lot of it just was bad football. It was bad football because teams repeatedly had to hold out 15 to 20 players on, on their roster. Uh, and and sometimes in many cases, almost entire position groups, um, players weren't able to practice effectively ahead of time. And sure, Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson still mostly looked like those teams. But then, like, did you watch Temple? Like it was, it, a lot of these were, were, were disasters and, and not just, not like fun disaster. Like it's 1 a.m. and we're watching Arizona State. It's, it's less fun disasters. And everything that we're, we saw with the stresses of the pandemic is still true at this level, but you're right. One, the, the financial incentive to make sure that we're playing football come hell or high water. It's not really there. Nobody's making a ton of money at the SCS level, but they're also not spending a lot of as much money. They're not testing the same way. They don't have the exact same protection capacity that an FBS institution might've had. And the disease is still there. Now we're, we're fortunate that right now, it, it, you know, the many cities are experiencing you know declines in positivity rates, and we're seeing some benefits from vaccination. But it, this is still out there, so you're right. Like I'm, I'm not sure. I, my guess is we're probably going to have a season finish, but we're already kind of on the, you know pretty close to the minimum viable product uh, of of a year. And like Norfolk State opted out. We're recording this here on a Tuesday. They opted out yesterday. We've seen a, a, multiple FCS teams decide to opt out like in the last three weeks, which I know has frustrated some other coaches and adds to an additional level of unpredictability. And that's going to be an, an interesting storyline here, right? Like to what extent can the North Dakota States and the Weavers and the Northern Iowa's just kind of truck along? And is everybody else equipped to handle this level of uncertainty, uh, given that they don't have unlimited financial resources? Because we saw some teams that have a lot of money at the FBS level struggle with this. I, I think it's going to be a, just a unique experience to, to see these teams in action. And, and speaking as someone who watched multiple UTEP games in, in, in the fall and multiple UMass games in, in the fall, I, I, I do like that there is going to be somewhat of a spotlight. You mentioned the there are some issues and, and certainly the, the ethical quantity that 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 are throwing out uh, these especially these lower level uh, FCS teams in, in the middle of a pandemic to play but in terms of when those lights go on and, and kickoff comes and everybody's been tested and, and cleared I, I still am interested to see what kind of product is actually on the field there because um, you know this is this is an opportunity for a lot of these programs to get a spotlight they simply never have I would imagine that ESPN and and Fox Sports are going to look into televising some of these games we already saw uh, Fox Sports net uh, pick up the the FCS opener on Saturday uh, between Tarleton and McNeese. So I, I would imagine from a television perspective, some of these schools might be able to say, hey, we could, we could get an extra six figures um, from getting a couple of these games televised that normally would not. And so it, it's going to be interesting to, to see just how everybody navigates it. I, I do think it's going to be rocky. Uh, I do think it's going to be fascinating to see if maybe a player breaks out and and we still got that draft right around the corner too. Maybe he says, you know, yeah. I, 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 Bye. I'm, I'm getting told by some some agent that uh, I, I might know or you know bumped into me or whatever that I could be a third round pick now 
maybe I'm going to opt out of the season in, in the middle of the year. Just so many things could go wrong. Uh, I, I really do feel for a lot of the coaches and administrators that are <laughs> trying to navigate this because we, I, I do think we are going to get an FCS playoff in some respect, but how we're going to get there is, is just going to be a straight roller coaster up and down and up and down. Yeah. How, how legitimate it's going to, it's going to be, uh, who, who knows? Um, I'm, I'm probably going to watch a couple of these. It, it, it'll, I don't know if they're going to, if people will continue to tune in. I mean, this was part of the argument for so many conference USA and Sunbelt teams to, to make sure that they played at the beginning of the year because, Hey, there's TV windows that need filled. And if the big 10, the PAC 12 can't do it by God, we're going to put CUSA on TV. And by and large, people didn't really watch. Uh, and, and by, and like, and we just saw this through with the Super Bowl. People aren't watching sports period as much as they used to. So, you know, maybe that ends up being additional exposure for SCS football. And I, I personally think that'd be a positive. Like I think a lot of those, the, the quality of the games are good. They, they matter to a lot of people. It's, it's high level competition. Um, will that make up for everything? Will it still be as high level? You know, say I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with this, you know, about you with this over the next couple of weeks, once we have a, a little bit of data points or have, have some more data points right now. Um, if nothing else, this is an opportunity for fans to get introduced to a couple of uh, expansion teams, right? Charleston state, they're playing your opener. They're going to be in your, your new look whack. Um, allegedly they, this might be an FBS team in the next six to 10 years. Uh, anybody telling you what's happening sooner than that? is wrong. <laughs> um, but you know, if, if, if you want to kind of check in on some of these ASON or WAC or, or programs you haven't been thinking about the, the Deion Sanders, Jackson state, you know, situation, now's your chance to do it. You don't have to watch college basketball. If you don't want to, there's, there's a sports crunch going on at, at a lot of these FCS schools included. I mean, even at the FBS level, you've got, uh, really basically everything going on on campus. You've got men and women's basketball, you have uh, volleyball, you have, field hockey you know you have all of these sports going on at the same time and a lot of these athletes especially at the fps levels and in the power five levels they're getting tested three to five times you know a week and and that's that's a lot of burden on on the system uh you throw in football at some of these these schools uh it it is a lot to navigate and and as much as we kind of pulled our hair out and and grew gray ones uh in in this last summer uh i i would imagine the administrators at a lot of these FCS schools are doing the same right now, just because of the sheer volume of things going on on campus that they're going to have to contend with. This was something I, I was looking into several months ago and I had some of these FCS schools and, and this is happening too, at like the division two level as well. They're like, we don't have enough parking <laughs> for all of these things. We don't have enough stadium operators. We won't have enough security staff. We're worried. We're not even going to have enough officials. We're going to have to spend extra money to bring in contract work to bring in everything because it's one thing of Louisville has everything happening at once or Texas, but we're looking at a lot of schools that are not used to having 10 different sports all happening over the same month. So if you know a sports information director or an operations person in your life, that's working on a WAC or a SWAC or a Missouri Valley school, buy them a beer, buy them several beers because they, they could probably use it. And, and I think it's going to be interesting, too, because you look at the Ivy League. They've opted out completely of basically this entire calendar year of sports. And what kind of effect is that going to have not only on them? I mean, I think it's a, a decision in retrospect we might look back quite favorably on in terms of, yeah, they, they opted out of, out of basically playing sports during the entire pandemic. And, and they're going to restart, uh, hopefully, uh, in the fall where most of the, the country has been vaccinated Maybe we kind of look back at the Ivy League as well and see see revisit that decision compared to a lot of their peers, especially at the FCS level, not only playing football, but playing a lot of these other sports as well. It goes against every part of my nature 
to sit here and say nice things about the Ivy League, but I think I think there's a real chance that you might be right, and and that is absolutely something that we should revisit here. I think in the in, in the coming months, um, I think I th- I think that's a that's a, a good place for us to kind of hit the pause button here, right? Taking the audacity of complimenting the Ivy League, uh, particularly <laughs> in college football, which has been the source of so much of the things that maybe we don't like about this sport, or at least that we have been complaining about this sport. Um, we'll be back next week. We have uh, a couple of, of very interesting interview guests lined up here uh, in the near future. Uh, again, if you want to support this podcast, there are two great ways for you to do that. One, um, we are happy to do your ad read, right? If you are interested in sponsoring going for two, drop me a note. I'm at sales at extrapointsmb.com and we can we can set up a package that works for you. You can also use this podcast to subscribe and support the Extra Points newsletter. And you can do that by going to www.extrapointsmb.com slash Go for two, G-O-F-O-R, two, to get 20% off and support the newsletter that makes all of this possible. Brian, where can the good people on the internet find you? In a non-creepy, very supportive way. How can I, they find you? I love you? the support, especially on Twitter, at Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And really the best support for me is for you to go out, subscribe, rate, review give me those five stars on especially itunes spotify whatever you're listening on give us a great review give us five stars we are not above begging for them we will maybe even read a few of them here on air uh, if you want if you leave us a really really great review but uh please do that it helps a lot of other people find this podcast we, we can hopefully build a more of a community because uh, we really do want to focus on not just what goes on on the field but uh, really what's going on around college athletics hopefully we'll be able to continue to do that on this podcast and one great way to do that is is uh, certainly subscribing and, and reviewing as well yeah i am absolutely shameless i retweet compliments all the time you want to write a nice review and you want me to read it on the air i'll be happy to do that we got to get itunes page looking like an alabama recruiting class i want to see nothing but five stars that's the only, that's the only way that we're going to be able to uh to, to continue to build this and make it into the product that is worth uh that's worth your time and and worth your support which is what we endeavor to do uh in the meantime i uh thanks for spending some time here with us thanks for supporting what we do we have some more exciting things coming up here in the future um and uh, uh that that'll do it i'm matt That's Brian. We'll catch up with you next week.